Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 10th, 2017, and my guest is author, thinker, flaneur, weightlifter, free weights only, trader, and quarter-time professor, but no more, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Our topic for today is the manuscript version of his next book. So there may be some things in this conversation that don't make it into the final version. And this is his seventh appearance on Econ Talk. Nassim, welcome back to Econ Talk. Great. Thank you. I'm very honored to come back. I want to start with a, a, a somewhat lengthy quote that uh, about Robert Rubin. You, I think you call this example the, a Rubin trade. You say, Robert Rubin, a former secretary of the United States Treasury, one of those who signed their names on the banknote you just used to pay for coffee, collected $100 million in bonuses from Citibank in the decade preceding the banking crash of 2008. When the bank literally insolvent was rescued by the taxpayer, he didn't write any check. He invoked uncertainty as an excuse. Heads he wins, tails he shouts, black swan. Nor did Rubin acknowledge that he transferred risk to taxpayers. Spanish grammar specialists, assistant school teachers, supervisors in tin can factories, vegetarian nutrition advisors, and clerks for assistant district attorneys were stopping him out. That is, taking his risks and paying for his losses. But the worst casualty has been free markets, as the public, already prone to hating financiers, started complaining free markets and such higher-order forms of corruption and cronyism when, in fact, it is the exact opposite. It is government that makes these things possible by the mechanisms of bailouts. Now, listeners will know that's a longtime uh, theme of mine as well, so, of course, I'm going to like it. But I like this general point about uh, what you call a Rubin trade that – when it goes well, you earned it. But when it doesn't go well, oh, I, you can't predict the future. So talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, it's something more general than that Citibank uh, bonus uh, scheme. Uh, something that, uh, that, that that you can detect and, and, and generalize and detect in society whenever a person can transfer risks uh, into the future and against immediate payments. And these things happen in modernity because we tend to judge people um, on numbers. It's not by based on, there's no survival involved in it. So it's not what I call ergodic, which is something I hope you'll bring up. And, um, and people are uh, currently more and more evaluated based on metrics rather than uh, evaluated by reality itself. So, for example, let's take a politician. A politician has an incentive to load, to increase GDP, that's a metric, and, uh, and he, or reduce unemployment, uh, short term, of course, that's a metric, and, 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 of course, increase the risks of blow-ups in the future. So, you don't have that. If the person was running his own farm, he would not treat it the same way. Why? Because the skin in the game they have is very cosmetic. So you can generalize to a lot of situations. I mean, I've generalized to uh, policymakers. Uh, you know, you invade Iraq, uh, you, you pay no downsides, so visibly you want to uh, engage in policies that are good for you. Uh, and, and, of course, 
you, you don't care about the taxpayer, you don't care about uh, the soldiers, you're not a soldier, and you don't care about uh, the, Iran- the Iraqis. So that's chronic and has been increasing noticeably since the Second War. I want to disagree a little bit with the um, skin in the game for politicians. It, it seems to me there's a big difference between a president's skin in the game and, a, say, a senator voting for some resolution related to that war. So it's true that George Bush, Bush's children didn't die in that war, and he didn't die in that war. He was not literally at risk or his family, but his, his historical reputation is – and right. it's, yeah, it's, but that's not that's not enough. It's, uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's less so. You know, the politicians who supported the war, who voted for it, who wrote an op-ed for it, the academics say, or the pundits, they have some historical cost. It's rather remarkable how little, especially in, in we're talking about foreign policy, but in economics, it's remarkable how many stupid things you can write and uh, they get forgotten because you're smart or whatever is the right metric that other people use or the metric they think is the right metric. But it seems to me in the political realm, uh, you don't want to rely on dictators who clearly have a survival. Uh, well, actually, I mean, the argument you bring is, 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 is quite – I mean, you, 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 the, the way we, we cannot solve the problem by taking the situation as it is by saying, okay, we have politicians, we can't do uh, you know, uh, and, and, and things any differently because it's a democracy. you got to think of the optimal structure. The optimal structure is when a person is penalized okay, long-term from an action, and that only happens if in a decentralized system. See, for example, the mayor of a town or the mayor of a small uh, or, you know, a village in Switzerland has to live there, and uh, if he fails, uh, his reputation is something he has more skin in the game than a bureaucrat in Washington whose uh, action cannot be identified. And, and I've solved, I tried to solve the problem with, under the following principle. It is vastly easier to macro-BS than micro-BS. So there is a structure uh, change you can make to accommodate this problem. To accommodate the absence in the game. Let me mention one thing, uh, you know, uh, before we continue the conversation. For a lot of people, skin in the game is is confused for an incentive, uh, whereas in this discussion, skin in the game is largely disincentive. Well, incentives can go either way, but you're making the point that you have a, you don't just have an incentive to do the right thing. You had you have a disincentive to avoid the wrong thing. Uh, well, I mean, disincentive and or punishment, or yeah. actually, what and 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 what I insisted in the introduction, it's not just an agency problem. In other words, disalignment of interest, it is a, a, a absence of a filter, because the way skin in the game has worked traditionally is as a um, not just as much as a deterrent as an idiot filter, because a lot of people are just stupid. It's not, so, so you cannot do anything you see, to deter them because they don't understand their own interest. I mean, we know, like, look at the LTCM people, long-term capital management people. They they were trading their own money. Okay, uh, they they of course were deluded. So you can't really. Uh, and, but they had skin in the game, and they were. I mean, for many of them, most of them had skin in the game. So the 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 point is that it's a filter, and and I explained in the beginning of the book that the reason you don't have that many car accidents is because. Uh, the, in, in addition to you know being in a car and driving it yourself is a deterrent. You can go very fast because you kill yourself. 
but but also because a lot of bad drivers are uh, in the cemetery. So right. at some they're point removed. they stop killing people. They're removed exactly. from the removed. distribution. Yeah, no, for sure. Exactly. So so it is a filter. So skin in the game is a filter for a lot of things. And that's what people have missed traditionally in the treatment of uh, that notion. And in fact, most of the book is about that filter. So what do you think of this argument that you should underpay certain professions, say teachers and doctors, I don't think either one is underpaid, but the argument might go that you should underpay them because you want to attract people who are motivated less by the money and more by the intrinsic reward of helping other people. And since they don't have any skin in the game, in the sense that if you do a bad job teaching arithmetic or or English reading literacy, you're not going to bear the price 30 years later when that kid can't really function very well. So you want to have people who are intrinsically motivated. Do you think that's a good argument? Um, not really. I, I don't think that we can. Uh, we should decide on compensation. I think the market system should decide on compensation. We just, as a society, should decide on boundaries, on extremes. Uh, just like uh, we focus on, we want the government to focus on law enforcement, which is risk management, uh, focus on defense, which is risk management, focus on the big things that cannot be solved uh, you know, by individuals, risk management. Uh, likewise, we just have to make sure, just make sure that there's appropriate uh, skin in the game and let the market function the way it wants to function. Now, it sort of happens that with doctors, there's some skin in the game, but sometimes um, uh, things uh, get gamed because, again, you have metrics with doctors or you have uh, metrics for hospitals. So things may be gamed, but, 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 but still we're a lot better off with a system the way it is now, thanks to torts law, than, than, than uh, in a uh, uh, sort of like trying to get together and have meetings to try to organize these professions from the top. Of course, I agree with you. You're speaking to the converted, but... <laughs> yeah, of but, course, of course. But yes. if you were starting a private school and were the principal of it, uh, would you consider underpaying... I'm, I'm, the reason I'm thinking about this, I'm going to pick... Let me pick another fun example from the book. You suggest that I should pick a surgeon uh, if I have a choice between a, a thin-rimmed uh, eyeglass, uh, classic movie-casting version of a surgeon versus somebody who looks more like a butcher, kind of a slob, pants, shirt's not quite tucked in, speaks with an uneducated accent, say you go Brooklyn, uh, Brooklynese, that I should go with the butcher. I shouldn't go with the suave guy. I, well, I'm saying, yeah, conditional on someone having... Uh uh, you know, an e- uh, two people have an equal. You have one looks like a movie actor who you know, you'd cast in a movie to represent a surgeon, and the other one looks like a butcher. Um, conditional on both of them having the same, uh, uh, say, status uh, in the hospital and being offered as two, you know, alternatives. I pick the one who looks like the butcher. But, I mean, so 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 that, that that's the idea. Uh, why, of course, the argument that uh, things, uh, uh, everything that shines is not gold, but, but also there's another selection argument is that that person who uh, doesn't look like a surgeon uh, probably suffered more uh, because of this bias and, and has uh, more, more to say. And we, I generalized mostly, I was, of course, concerned with scientific papers. <laughs> and I noticed that all the great scientific arguments can be written on, on, a, on a napkin. And, and then you see people who you know, write papers that look very scientific and have the right jargon and then 
confuses you enough so you forget what, what the central point is, and and makes you it make you also forget that the that the entire thing can be uh, developed uh, in, in a much more uh, intuitive way. If I underpay someone for a job, or if someone is underpaid for a job, or accept a lower compensation for a function, that person has soul in the game, not just is not just doing it for the money. And you don't want people doing a job for the money. So, so I agree with you. Underpaying, if I were to pick um, two compensation schemes, I would pick the one that underpays people a little bit, simply because of signaling mechanism, and and it's a nice filter. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about employment. We may have talked about this in the last episode, but it's so interesting. I just love it. Talk about the example of um, flying to um, Germany for Oktoberfest, and with I've contracted out my private plane, and I've got a pilot coming, and he informs me the day before that he's gotten a better offer and he's going to do something else. Exactly. The reason we have employees, and that, uh, again, I credit a uh, conversation you know, with you, is the reason is not because an employee has, uh, you know, a, you know, it's cheaper, uh, delivers things better. No, it's because an employee has a lot more to lose. He has skin in the game. In other words, he has something to lose more than that specific job. So, for, so if if and and they've also have signaled to us employees by being employees, someone who has, well, was an employee for thirty five years or for twenty five years in a large corporation, they signal to us that they're not free. And and it's great. Sort of like you're you're so you have an employee, it's inefficient, but it's a good risk management tool because you know that they're not going to um, uh, let you uh, down when when you need them the most. They're always gonna be there when you need them, you know, in an emergency. And that you, you can't get within a market system uh, that is uh, entirely built on uh, subcontractors and, and contracts. And that's sort of like, to me, it's, it's sort of footnote to Kosi. The reason we have uh, corporations is to avoid having legal contracts. But that version that the person, the employee is not someone, is someone who escapes that notion of contract is to me quite central in why we have uh, employees because you want to own some people. And be, just like we have, a lot of people have country houses and uh, that they don't use, it's much more efficient to stay in a nice hotel. It's because they want to know that that place, they can go to it whenever they want to. If they woke up at midnight and decide to drive to their country house, they can do that. They won't do it, but they would like to know they can do it. So they don't want to share. And that that's quite central, this idea of skin in the game. And that was also a risk management tool that the Romans, like the Romans practically have discovered so many things. Uh, uh, I mean, I would say almost everything in, in, in one way or another. So the Romans figured it out because they never let a, a free person be a steward. In a big in a big state, they wanted a slave. And what's the reason? Because you can punish a slave. <laughs> you own a slave. You can punish a slave. So if the person is caught cheating, the the, the 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 punishment is much harsher for a slave. So the steward was typically a slave. <laughs> yeah, that was very so, deep. I, th- I thought about Joseph in the Book of Genesis uh, when uh, he's he's the steward of Potiphar's house, and you're thinking, why is this? lowly person given this control. Well, he's really smart was one answer, but it's not enough. It's that ability to punish downside. And of course, as a result of it, Joseph ends up in prison really in a 
it, what appears to be a life sentence, but um, manages to to get a, get out. But the point about having a slave versus a um, employee is a is a really interesting one, and it, it highlights something. And we talked about this in a, in another one of our conversations, and it's so trivial, but it's so deep because it's so easily misunderstood. And the way you phrase it is, probabilities aren't the same as expectation. The odds of something being remote is not enough to mean you don't have to worry about it because it depends on the consequences of that remote thing happening, not just the probability. So being uh, wiped out by your slave or having being able to uh, punish your slave is really very powerful because it's the magnitude, not just the probability that matters. And I think that's just an incredibly it's incredibly yeah, obvious. It's because, but it's very deep yeah, because so you, people forget it all the time. They say, oh it just that's not that's such a low probability event. Well but if you die when it happens, it's more important than if you don't die. It's it's exactly not, it's uh, and hold, here you can look at it that that, that it, it's uh, um you, you you need a slave because you need someone that, who can be punished by a mistake, and an employee is gonna never gonna be able to come back if um, he's uh, you know developed a reputation uh, bad reputation. Nobody would hire him or her, but a free person uh, can always manage because well, you, you can only so, fire an employee, but you can torture a slave. I mean, it's not a very attractive thought. Yeah, yeah, but that's, that's true. The point. But still, an employee by firing an employee. You're actually, they have more to lose than just the job. Oh, for Whereas sure. a contractor, you only fire a contractor, you know, you find another client. Firing an employee has more downside. Agreed. And, and, and typically, uh, these, these are people who want to stay in the job for a long run. They trade their freedom uh, for reliability. Uh, no, it's the, uh, it's the same argument I make. The hierarchy you're suggesting is contractor, employee, slave, and issue employees getting close to slave because they have more at stake than contractor, but not as much as a slave. But it reminds me of this argument I sometimes make about football coaches or general managers in sports. They are very risk-averse, and yet they're in this highly competitive business, and it's hard to understand why they're so risk-averse. But the answer is there's a decent chance that if they mess up, they'll never get that job again. There are only 30 of them, say, or 32, depending on the sport, and as a result, they act very cautiously. You could say, well, but what's the worst thing that can happen that doesn't work out the strategy or the trade or the draft pick? But it matters because the outcome isn't just unlikely. It's unlikely with effectively a death sentence. You may not come as, as in employment. You may not be able to get that job ever again. Yeah, yeah that's, that's – uh, no, I mean, but in fact, I, I made, I've observed somewhere that we have uh, many more slaves today than we did in uh, Roman times. Because in the Roman times, slaves were actually sometimes freer. And why are we so slave burdened today? Because you, because we have a more complex system that need more reliable people. And an employee is practically a slave. I mean, you think about it in these terms, right? He can't say what he thinks. He gets fired. He can go on Twitter and curse at someone else. There's a lot of things they can't do. But, but it's not there that, that they're a slave because they have to show up and give you their time. Nine to five, or nine to six, or sometimes eight to ten, uh, ten at, at night. <laughs> okay, so they have to give you so much, um, and and they're they're scared. With with a slave, in Roman times, okay, of course they have downsides. They could be beaten. They could be crucified. I mean, the owner could do whatever. Those are two negative uh, things. He wanted. Yeah. 
but 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 a slave at a t- at a time, you know, if you damage a slave, you can't sell him, so you lose market value. <laughs> and 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 with an employee, it's not the same. So it's quite. I mean, I, I looked. I mean, I haven't written much about it in Skin in the Game, of course, uh, so many other topics, but um, but I, I'm, I'm certain that that we have uh, more people who are dependent today than we did uh, in Roman times. It's an interesting argument. I, I, you do bear some cost if you fire your employees all the time. People are less less excited true, to work that's for true, you. But 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 uh, an employee is. Is, okay, someone who sold you his work unconditionally. See, saying, okay, you got to report at 9 a.m. and come back. So why, or sometimes if there's nothing to do, they still have to show up. So, or, or I mean, maybe you may have employees, of course, who are freer, but that's, that's a typical uh, standard. Why is that so? What, because you want people who are not free. And this is why we have a school system to basically teach people to not be free between the you know between eight and uh, four p.m. That, that's how it works. Yeah, it's practice. Yeah, it's pra- they, 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 so so they're, they're broken in young and, and they learn, and then so you have employees. <laughs> Let's talk about the honorable life. Uh, you say the following: You say most people you run into in real life, bakers, cobblers, plumbers. Taxi drivers, accountants, tax advisors, garbage collectors, dental cleaning assistants, car wash operators, not counting Spanish grammar specialists, of course, pay yes. a price for their mistakes. So here I am. I've got this interest. I have a great life, by the way. I'm very lucky and blessed. Um, but I don't know how honorable it is in that I don't have much skin in the game. I mean, if I, I, can, I could do a bad or better job interviewing my guests, but I don't, you know, what. I'm kind no, of yeah, just you're chit-chatting not, you know, here. No, no, but you're not. You're not transferring risks to others. You see, I've never seen you give economic advice in the sense of, I mean, you you argue about economic systems. I've never seen you uh, tell people to buy S and P, uh, you know, because it's going to rise tomorrow. I've never seen you hide risks. If they seem to do anything that hides risks for the collective. I've never seen you, um, you know, in, in engage in, in actions for which you don't, uh, you know, pay for the downside because you don't inflict downside on society. So that's okay. <laughs> you see, a plumber doesn't uh, inflict uh, any uh, um, uh, tail risk on uh, on the rest of us. So, so it's not. So these people are honorable in the sense that they're calibrated. They're, they, you know, they take. They take uh, no more than what they give. So let me take an inversion of, a version of economic policy where I do sometimes make state an opinion, and I sometimes invoke skin in the game on the other side. I'm just wondering what you think of my side. So when people say that the minimum wage, if we raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, it's not going to hurt the poor because it just we have a lot of evidence. Is the claim that it doesn't? And I say, well, I'm not sure your evidence is correct. And I'm not sure you've looked at all the relevant margins. As you would point out, the metrics you use are kind of blunt, like how many jobs there are. You don't look at hours often. You don't look at training. You don't look at how nice people are to each other. There's all kinds of aspects of on-the-job experience that could be hurt by the minimum wage that you ignore. And you have no skin in the game, economist advocating for the (coughs) minimum wage. You just – you could be imposing horrible costs on people without any knowledge of it. And they come back to me and say, yeah, but you're just going to sit around and do nothing. You have nothing positive to add. You're just a complainer and a cynic. 
What should I say to them? What should I say? Neither nor your enemies have direct skin in that game, okay, which is fine. But the person, but the person who advocates a minimum wage, you see, in case there are adverse consequences, will not be paying for it. So it's much better to let people who have skin in the game decide on whether they should be minimum wage. And if you ask unemployed people making currently zero, whether it should be making a theoretical 15, okay, $15 or $25, whatever minimum wage you want to set, if you ask the unemployed, okay, then you you should take their answer seriously because they have skin in the game. While currently you have intellectuals who have a job who just want because of uh, virtue signaling or maybe to feel uh, uh, better, uh, maybe to feel that they're, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to give themselves uh, that aura, feeling good uh, because they did something good. Or, and so, so you have a lot of fakes, <laughs> fakes, uh, the true fakes and, uh, or confused people advocating actions, uh, you know, that feel good to them because, hey, of course, you're going, they, they think that it improves society or, you know, on the surface, it does improve society. Like you, I believe that the um, minimum uh, wage would definitely either uh, uh, cause uh, more employment for robots or, uh, you know, more uh, jobs going to places where uh, the wages are lower. So, so, so uh, the, the, you have to have, it's the unemployed who should decide or unemployed or people who are subjected to these minimum wage or wages close to these, um, close to the minimum, who should decide? Not some intellectual at CUNY New York making $250,000 a year. Well, I think some of them are motivated for good reasons. I like to think they are. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, at least in the short run. Okay, but let me tell you one thing here. If you think that there should be a minimum wage, then you should pay, okay? People who think there should be a minimum wage should voluntarily pay everybody around them, okay? The difference between... Uh, uh, whatever they're getting and that minimum wage. And when you go to McDonald's, you should leave a $3 tip or $4 tip to the person. If, you know, if, if that's really what they want to do, whether they should do it themselves. I've, I've, I've discussed in the book that this hypocritical behavior on the part of people who always have ideas of how, how things should be, but in fact don't pay for it themselves. Like uh, they argue about privilege or class privilege, but they don't. But they're themselves uh, privileged, and, and they don't give uh, you know uh, half their wealth to others. They want higher taxes on others, but not you know. But they don't want to give more to charity. I think their defense would be, I don't find it. I'm not sure I find it compelling, but they will argue. Well, I'm willing to chip in as long as other people are forced to. And then I'd be happy doing it. So that's that would be their claim. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's, that's a weird argument. Virtue should not, should be unconditional, should not be, should not be conditional. In other words, I'm going to save people from drowning only if other people also save other people from drowning. That's not an argument that, that, that can stand on, on, you know, I, I don't know any ethical system that, that is based on something like that. Let's switch gears for a minute. One of my favorite yes. parts of the manuscript is when you said, um, that I shouldn't have an assistant because I'm not very good at delegating. I tend to do a lot of things myself. I get some help with econ talk and a few other things I do, but a lot of it I do myself. I don't, even though I say to myself, wouldn't it be more efficient if I could just get someone to do some of these tasks for me? Uh, what, what's your thought on that? No, my whole idea that the, 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 
the, the time is people keep complaining. Oh, time is the biggest, uh, uh, the, the most valuable commodity. Time is important. Let's get okay. And and and, and yet they waste that commodity doing things that they shouldn't be doing. So, um, if I had an assistant, I'd be forced to have meetings. I'd be forced to do things just because I have an assistant, full-time assistant. But what I do is I employ people for specific tasks. See, for, for example, if you, you want someone to wash your car, you hire someone to wash your car. You don't hire someone and then that person takes care of your life. And I've noticed that effectively it allows me to have a lot of free time because my commodity is free time. Now, free time, one is there's serendipity. I can, at a whim, have different idea and also because i like to procrastinate i like to sit on things i sat on a black swan for 20 years the scientific papers i've been sitting on now for 25 years so the, the, the i like to sit on things and has always paid for me you see you sit on things and then when you're certain then you just uh, write them down and, and and also it avoids that noise it's a sort of good noise filter it's the same as not reading unconditionally the newspaper you can read the newspapers, but it has to be driven by the news, not uh, driven by, uh, you know, uh, by the fact that you have a newspaper in your hands. So it's the same thing with books. It's the same thing with a lot of things. So it's a not, you need a filter, and that filter. Uh, so 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 if you don't have an assistant, you're not industrializing your life. So you have more soul in the game and the activities that you uh, are engaged in, and it's more in line with your true deep preferences. I like that idea. And I'm going to take another point here, which uh, I did, was a little bit uneasy about, as, as you might expect. You wanted to say something nice about protectionism, and you wanted to defend being an artisan. So talk about why there's a case for protectionism on the basis of artisanship. Okay. The, 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 the point is as follows. Uh, the, the, I have already argued against uh, what I call un. Uh, fettered globalization in the black swan saying that it's going to cause big systemic effects, particularly that these are driven by governments themselves who prop up large companies. So, uh, and, and the crisis came largely from that. So you have that a large uh, uh, continent will have many fewer species per square meter than a small island. See? So, uh, th that effect is, is, of course, we're feeling it because uh, Google, uh, you know, it, it operates in Zimbabwe. And uh, so, so basically there are no borders for large animals and you have a winner-take-all that's huge. But that may work conditional on the winner-take-all effects uh, operating pr properly and the big person going bust. But typically they get cozy with governments and they manage to not go bust. So, 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 so this is where... I thought that globalization was causing some uh, distortions in the system. The, 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 and, and then you got to remember, I'm, I'm fundamentally a localist, someone who believes in bottom-up system, not top-down. And, and globalization leads to corporations being like large governments. So this is how we started. But then I realized there was a second element in globalization that, that people fail to understand, that you have to ask the people, what do they want? Do they want more flat-screen TVs, you know, uh, cheap flat-screen TVs, more an extra 12 shirts made in China for, uh, you know, the, half the price they were paying for them uh, 20 years ago in nominal terms, okay? 
or do you want um, oh, is that what you want or do you want uh, to, to have a job so if you're a shoemaker your interest isn't so much in the money as in making shoes and your ego is in making shoes so that's what my, my argument with this globalization is that in, in, in the discussions, very little of that uh, uh, is uh, brought up that, that maybe their preference is to have a job and derive and, and derive uh, some kind of uh, uh, some kind of ego satisfaction from seeing the product. And that's why the artisan, the artisan is, is in it, of course, a little bit for the money. Uh, but uh, mostly for because they have a very synchronized life. It's not a nine-to-five thing. It is where at five o'clock, that's it, it's finished. It's what continues after. You see, they would like, first of all, it's part of their, their persona, and also they would like when they go out to the store to see perhaps the shoes they, they, they made themselves. And th that's where the big, th that's not discussed. So that's the idea of sold on the game. You have to understand that people may want to have sold in the game. Well, I think they do. I think they want they want they want their shoes and eat them too. Right? They want to have the freedom to make their own shoes, so they're going to keep out foreign shoemakers. But they want to be able to pay a low price for the clothes in this flat, flat screen TV. So there's yeah, this, this natural is, impulse to use the state to keep out competitors, so I can have my kind of um, life. It's a problem. This it's a trade off. No, no, the, the, no, no. The, 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 there is there are degrees, uh, and this I may disagree with some libertarians. Okay, when people say that they're against globalization, uh, the, the people are quite confused in what they mean by globalization. Do they mean that we should go back, close the country as Japan did? Okay, I mean, of course, uh, you know that's total absence of globalization or within within Japan, within the country, close every state, okay, and every state needs to be self-sufficient. Or does it mean uh, just take care of a few strategic things to make sure things don't go out of control? And, and, and nobody has been able to explain to me what do they mean by pro-globalization or anti-globalization. Because even what people who call themselves pro-globalization uh, are not in favor of opening borders to people for free travel. So, so, so. In so, general, there are a few exceptions. In but general, yeah. I mean, in general. So, so they're very confused. So these discussions are very confused. So my point is that I am, of course, in favor of globalization. I'm in favor of some kind of specialization. But at the same time, if people want to vote in a certain way, and you have to understand their preferences, you have to understand why they may like to make, to, to see their own shoes in the store. Maybe they want, uh, they have other things in life than just, uh, uh, you know, their economic uh, uh, bottom line. Uh, but, the, but at the same time, their economic bottom line is a, a substantial concern. But it's not 100%. Oh, I couldn't agree with that completely, of course. Um, but then you go, back, you go back to all, you go back to Adam Smith, you go to all these people. I mean, nobody has ever defined capitalism as just uh, unfettered, unconditional pursuit of money. Absolutely. Okay, uh, nobody has absolutely. ever defined it that way, okay? And, and that's a really bad system, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah, we don't want that. Um, but freedom of choice, which would include the freedom to give up money, to do something you love, or the freedom to – I just want to make sure we don't spend too many uh, resources uh, and too much time 
allowing me to decide what you can buy. I think that's the trade-off. But I, I take the point about artisanship, and I, you know, my wife likes to shop at the local food co-op, and I think there's some emotional advantage for her, not for me particularly, but emotional advantage beyond the taste of the food in the fact that it's grown locally, or at least she thinks it is, and it probably is. But that's a luxury. That's a very expensive habit that most of the world can't afford. I'm not sure it's very expensive, and I'm not sure the system the way it is now is very efficient. This is what I've discussed. I've, I've said it 10 years ago. I mean, it was published 10 years, more than 10 years ago in The Black Swan. But I figured out 10, 15 years, 20 years ago, that, that effectively what seems to be efficient is not efficient. What seems to be efficient is hiding risk somewhere. Possibly. But, but again, I'm not against, I mean, it's not, I'm not in favor of uh, 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 transforming every single individual into an artisan. But at the same time, you have to listen to people who want to have a soul in their merchandise, not just interested in economic uh, growth. Let's talk about um, taking advice from people. Of course, uh, as you like like to point out about me, it's kind of you to suggest they don't give the kind of advice that has downside risk or poses costs on others or in my own benefit. But a lot of times in life, we're forced to accept advice or we get advice uh, from, say, I've been thinking about doctors lately. My parents are both old, and thank God they're alive, but they're in their 80s, and they get a lot of advice that I always wonder whether it's good advice or whether it's somebody with a hammer looking for a nail. So you're right. Beware of the person who gives advice telling you that a certain action on your part is, quote, good for you. Well, it's also good for him. Well, the harm to you doesn't directly affect him. Remember that when you visit a medical office, you'll be facing someone who, in spite of his authoritative demeanor, is in a fragile situation. He is not you, not a member of your family. He has no direct emotional loss should your health experience a degradation. His objective is naturally to avoid a lawsuit, something that can prove disastrous to his career. Now, a lot of doctors, I think, probably are offended by that. Think, or do you think I only care about losing I, money I in a lawsuit? Actually, a lot of doctors liked that point. <laughs> and, <laughs> Why? And, and actually, originally, it's many of my, my, my friends. Because they themselves are, don't like the perverse uh, system, uh, the, 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 actually the tort system, that of course help us a lot. But let's consider the following situation. We know that statins, and, 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 and I wrote about it in Antifragile, I was attacked, but it turned out to be true, that statins, in fact, are uh, very harmful. They have iatrogenics, harm done by the healer, and they carry long-term risks for people who take them. But say a doctor does not prescribe statins to a, a person who visits him or her, and the person has a heart attack in a parking lot on the way back to the car. The doctor is going to be sued. Okay. Oh, you know, you should prescribe statins. Okay. Or, or uh, the person drops dead uh, maybe six weeks later, say. Okay. So the, on the other hand, if you prescribe statins, you're never going to be sued for that heart attack. So this is risk management for the doctor that's not optimal for the patient. See, and doctors are aware of it. A lot of them are aware of it. But they feel trapped because the system is not favorable to true treatment of risk. So, and, and it leads to over-medication, it leads to uh, a lot of things. Now, now this comes from pharma, and, uh, and, and Antifragile explained the following, that if a person is slightly hypertensive, 
ever so slightly hypertensive. Okay. The, 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 the number needed, they're going to treat you. Okay. But the number needed to treat are like uh, 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 huge. In other words, six, you treat 67 person to uh, cure one. Okay. Whereas if the person is very ill, you know, it's 100% effective to treat that person or 95% effective. So, but let's think about it in terms of probability distribution. People one standard deviation away are way, way, way too many compared to people five standard deviations away. And medicine is not interested in five standard deviation away. They're interested in a person that's slightly ill, the one sigma away from the normal. And 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 so 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 the doctors sort of like are trapped in a system where they have to treat these people, you see, and give an over medicated and high risk, the Bob Rubin risk, of course, you have gain and then the person uh, suffers later, it's not your problem. And so that risk transfer takes place and has taken place with, with in many situations, with the statins, with some, um, with, with, with a lot of classes of drugs, okay? But you don't see it with cancer because cancer, you're in a tail of distribution already and medicine tends to work very well in a tail of distribution. I want to ask you about something very different for a minute because I'm just thinking about one of the interesting things you write in your book is that each of your books kind of grows out of a small part of of the uh, book before. I have some of that in my own work as well, and it's very rewarding. You have an idea, you write about it for a paragraph, and you realize two years, five years later that it's got you had a lot more to say and end up writing a book about it, which is extraordinary. Do you have any regrets about things you wrote in your old books or the things you you wish you hadn't said are the things you've learned are there mistakes you've made you're very confident uh, you're you're the most confident humble man i know okay i have i have made a lot of local mistakes in my books but i went back and corrected almost all of them without anybody knowing <laughs> all right like for example um but they're very small mistakes like thinking that dawkins uh, was the real thing Okay, and now I think he is a BS vendor. So I had to go back and remove Dawkins from my previous books or references to Dawkins in that sense. So I've done uh, uh, quite a bit of that. Not quite a bit, but I've done some of that. But I have not, the, I mean, what I regret is, um, is something different. Like, for example, skin in the game to me is nothing but a symmetry in uh, risk. Um, Bearing. So someone bears the risks, the other person bears the reward. It's like an option where someone has the upside, the other one has the downside. So I naturally thought that the idea fit in anti-fragile. And I wrote maybe 20, 30 pages uh, on, on a subject at the end of anti-fragile. And then I didn't realize that most people don't remember what's at the end of a book. <laughs> or many people don't read the, the, the final parts of the book. Um, and I was lucky that at least they read into the middle part, which is because more, a lot of the cited material is in the middle part. But they, so, so that was a mistake. That was a strategic mistake. Of, I should not have discussed skin in the game in anti-fragile. I should have you know, known uh, immediately that a subject is important enough to be treated on its own. So these are the things I regret. Do now, uh, technical mistakes... Aside from though, okay, yeah, I made a couple more mistakes, and let me uh, and let me confess. Uh, at the beginning, I was very excited about uh, uh, psychology, 
experimental psychology. And, and but with, I was excited about it, thinking they could yield answers. And, and then I, uh, with time, I just realized that um, it was not, uh, it didn't have the solidity I was, I was uh, hoping for. Do you have any blind spots that you know blind of? Blind spots? That you know of. Uh, blind spots. I mean, typically, yes. Let me tell you my, my, my things. If I get excited about someone and ideas, I get very excited, okay? Uh, and, and I'm often wrong. But if I am completely repelled by someone and what that person stands for, um, I've never regretted it. <laughs> So, so well, that could be a blind so spot. That could be a blind spot. Uh, no, because there's something about uh, BS vending. If uh, all it, take is, it takes is N of one of BS vending, you know, just like uh, you know, society uh, doesn't let you steal or kill more than once without you know categorizing you. So they don't don't wait for a lot of large numbers. So if the person has one instance of, of BS, then you realize. It takes one to make you a BS vendor, you see, but it takes a, a, an infinite number of saying good things to make you a non-BS vendor. It's sort of like the black swan problem. Explain that. What do you mean? This is an asymmetry. For example, uh, maybe that will lead you to the minority rule, which is, if to, like. to me, the, the, the most <laughs> substantial part of the book. Okay. Is that we have... We have the algebra of decision making is is very different from what people expect, uh, and 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 you know that in statistics, if I add uh, one uh, uh, one asset coming from a fat tail distribution to a portfolio of a thousand assets that come from thin thin tail distribution, the ensemble will be fat tailed. Okay, so all it takes is one. Uh, just like if you have contaminated, you you you, you drop a glass. Of contaminated water into a big jar, uh, the whole jar would be contaminated. You see, but if you drop uh, 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 the reverse, you know, this doesn't it also also make it contaminated. So, in other words, no matter how much you mix with contaminated water, it'll be contaminated. Of course, up to a point. So, and and that can lead to a minority rule, which has in my in my first of all, it has been downloaded. Uh, several million times, so so I know it has led to some uh, impact. Your essay, and you're talking about your essay on the topic. My essay yeah. on a topic, okay, and it was a chapter in a book, uh, and, and I've cheated a bit for writing this book because I've, I've posted a lot of things online, and and organized the book based on the excitement brought by the uh, the chapters. Of course, not 100, uh, percent but but I put so I put in the beginning things that sort of. Uh, uh, were, were, were downloaded or translated a lot. And the minority rule is as follows. It all started in Boston, where I noticed that uh, 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 a few, uh, there were a few Orthodox uh, uh, Jews who showed up to a party. And, and, uh, and I, I, I wanted to serve them lemonade, but I was worried. I said, oh, let me check if it's kosher, you know, you know. Sure, that you don't get non-kosher food. They said, "Oh, don't worry, it's going to be kosher." I said, "Why?" They said, "Well, all the lemonade over here is kosher." <laughs> okay, so don't worry. And I looked at the bottle. Effectively, it was kosher. Well, that's a minority rule because non-kosher person can uh, eat kosher, but a kosher person cannot eat non-kosher. So you have an asymmetry. So if you have the population rises over a certain percentage, uh, that percentage can be tiny. 
all foods is going to be kosher. As long as the costs of making them kosher are not too high. Exactly. So the, so the cheeseburger's out, but the but the but the, the Coca Cola but the Coca Cola, which is shocking, is kosher even though it had a secret formula that for years was allegedly only revealed to one rabbi who swore to secrecy would verify and certify that it is indeed kosher. But um, that was for a tiny proportion of the population. But everybody was drinking the same cola. Exactly. So if you if you translate that into just general social behavior, okay. Then, if you're someone coming from Mars and uh, tallying, uh, you know, the, the or going to the store to see what people drink, would we'll have the illusion that everybody is an Orthodox uh, <laughs> Jew, all right? So, so it's the same thing. Since the general preference is to have kosher, so, so the minority rule applies to so many things. <laughs> For example, uh, um, the 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 uh, well, same of course, dietary in the dietary domain, the same applies to halal. Uh, but also in a medical thing, if you're if you have one person on the plane, cannot stand the peanuts or cannot uh, or is extremely allergic to peanuts, and uh, well, that's it. The whole plane will be peanut free. And, and some airlines enforce that rule. Yeah, but okay. it, which I just have to note that Southwest, which is an incredibly successful airline, serves peanuts with abandon. But but the point is is true that you're generally you could find another snack. If there was a death risk, a life and death risk for, for peanut travelers, exactly. they're generally going to be cautious and find an alternative. Exactly. Find an alternative. Have, have cash, cashew nuts or whatever. It's the cost is not big. Or, or give them uh, whatever, pretzels, as, as Delta does. Talk a little bit about the Lindy effect. What is the okay, Lindy yeah. effect? Okay. The, the, actually, it's quite, this is my most, uh, uh, to me, my most... Uh, um, uh, Disturbing point, okay, and and perhaps the happiest one, and 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 it's a little effect that in fact made me change my mind about some of the psychology research. The the where the Lindy effect is as follows: uh, there are environment, okay, or there are uh, things, there are items, uh, there are ideas, there are units that have a life expectancy that increases with time. So, for example, a Broadway show that's been around for 300 days is likely now to have a life expectancy of 300 additional days, so total 600. Okay. Yeah, uh, Hamilton. Uh, uh, Two-year one. Hamilton's going to play forever. It's going to play or, forever. Or, or what, uh, for, for a while. Long so, time. So, exactly. So, you can use that rule for decision-making. Um, uh, when, when I was asked to predict the future once about four years ago by The Economist, they thought that I would answer, you know, with some kind of offensive uh, discourse. But then I, I told them, you know, uh, there's a, it's very easy to predict the future. You take the present as baseline and remove from the present everything that, that, that was not there 25 years ago. And that would allow you to see what's going to happen in 25 years. Now, I'm not saying the world is not going to be technological, but current technologies would be displaced by other technologies. So this is how you can apply the Zindi effect in your own decision-making. Company, companies that are not in the S&P 500 tend to be Lindy. Those in the S&P 500, less Lindy. And, uh, and, and you, can, you can figure out that if a company, uh, the company's survival increases with time, up to a point, of course. And then the same with technologies. Now, of course, you can also, you should, you should put a condition that, that the person uh, be healthy. We're talking about life expectancy. So if I take an old man say 85 
year old and he's very healthy, uh, his uh, 10-year-old grandson is likely to survive him. But if the grandson is sick, no, he's not likely to survive the old man. You see? Likewise, if a, te if a technology is very old but sick, it may not survive. So this allows us really to see uh, the structure, of, yeah, and, and, and that comes from fragility, directly from the idea of anti-fragile, that fragility is what doesn't like randomness, doesn't like variability, doesn't like volatility. And, but, but for us, uh, when we model uh, time and vol volatility are the same thing. What's the implication of the Lindy effect? Say, I, I love what you had to say about uh, journalism. Like, what is? It? <laughs> no, the point is, when I write, okay, the, 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 let's say for, I'm going to be blunt. Fooled by randomness is close to 20 years old. Okay, uh, fooled by randomness is close to 20 years old. Okay, now, uh, uh, how did? Why did it survive? Because over time, I took out of fooled by randomness. Everything that was contemporary, <laughs> everything that was local. So if I, when I'm writing and I'm writing uh, uh, the skin in the game, I will, the way to write, if I want my book to survive 20 years from now, I make sure it's readable for someone today and would have been interesting for someone 20 years ago. So if it's interesting today and would have been interesting 20 years ago, odds are it's going to be interesting 20 years from now. Well, I'm in a very small minority, I think, because whenever I mention your name at a cocktail party, people always say, oh, The Black Swan's a great book. And I say, yeah, I liked it a lot, but I like Fooled by Randomness better. So this is why I'm clearly using the Lindy effect un unknowingly, right? Yeah. Yes, and the book has survived. Although you can say that there are chapters of in, in a larger pool of things called the Incerto. Yeah. The Incerto is, you know, the, all the books are part of the same. Like Skin in the Game is volume five of the Incerto. Yeah, and therefore? The, so, so it's sort of like we're, we're talking about chapters of the same book. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So you have, it's the Incerto that will survive or won't survive, not just a specific sub-portion of it. Yeah, I think For, Although you may have, you may have some sub-portion because sometimes, you know, some books uh, survive because of... Uh, Volume one, like Proust's uh, La Recherche. Nobody has read more than volume one. Right? <laughs> or at least or people claim they've read more, but they, they usually don't. So the, the, the 20, I don't know how many volumes have survived because of volume one. Yeah, I've read volume one. Pages. Yeah. I've read volume one. I have to confess. I've never, okay. but I could pretend to have read more and no one would know, would they? <laughs> so I'm, we're, we're out of time. I wanna, we're going to close with a... Um, I just I want you to talk a little bit about complexity versus simplicity. And you mentioned earlier that good science can be written on a napkin. I'm, that put me in mind of the 700-page PhD thesis in the humanities. My, my thesis, I'm for better for us, I don't think it's very good work, but it was it was 70 pages. Uh, people always say to me, "Only 70 pages," as if that somehow meant it wasn't serious or thoughtful or whatever. But I think in economics today, there's a big premium put on. Math, mathematical sophistication on econometric sophistication, and there's been a big pushback from particularly, I think, left-leaning folks about what they call Econ 101, you know, simple ideas that they say disdainfully like 
demand slopes downward or incentives matter, that that somehow we're misleading our undergraduates because we only teach them the simplified, which they would call simplistic version of economics. And you have some nice things to say in defense of simplicity. So why don't we close with that? Well, um, let me uh, let me say there are two, two things. The first one is that typically when something is sophisticated or appears sophisticated, it's not. <laughs> okay. Uh, often, like when you take, I've taken, I've discussed two books, Piketty's book and um, Pinker's book. And, and these books are full of data. Uh, so charts and pages and data and the charts and data. They, they missed uh, elementary points of statistical um, significance uh, in both cases, although Piketty should have known better, <laughs> aside from other flaws, of course, and a thesis of both. So, so. You notice, so a lot of people make a career uh, doing cosmetic science, and cosmetic science looks sophisticated. But I'm going to speak in defense of mathematics, because mathematics, it's not because it's mathematical that you should reject uh, this branch of economics. It is because it is cosmetically mathematical, (laughs) because mathematical points do not require something as complicated as uh, all these things they go through, you see, something mathematical can be explained very simply. See, so and plus, I think it's, uh, there's things that can only be expressed mathematically. You can't because it becomes realistic. And as I write in in in, uh, in the introduction, I say that uh, lawyers and mathematicians are the only people who really have a precise definition of things they talk about because they define them very, 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 very uh, narrowly and very uh, specifically. So so just based on that, you need uh, mathematical work. But it doesn't mean it has to be complicated. So that's the first thing. The second one is that, is, 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 is some, is that when you are employed and do not have skin in the game, you don't have to act and look like someone employed. You see, uh, w- sorry, when you employ someone in the game, you have to look at someone employed. When you're not, like me, I'm not employed, so I don't have to look like someone employed. And and if you're employed, people do not judge you based on the end result. They're going to pick a metric. And the incentive to game a metric is always going to be there. And that the metric that fools people the most is the appearance of sophistication. So you put a lot of, if you write a book or a thesis or anything, you have a lot of citations at the end that are not needed. And actually, I cheated with Fooled by Randomness. The first version of Fooled by Randomness had no citations. It was very short, <laughs> very, very simple. And it, uh, and, and, but, 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 but I realized, hey, someone said, well, you know what? Nobody's going to give it to students. So I went in and just put random citations in the back. I went to my library and saw what books I had, started citing, say, okay, I added it, and then put a little section commenting on, on the research and literature. And then suddenly all the, all the professors, you know, who discovered that, uh, you know what, they're not really, if they're not rich, it's not because of them, it's because of randomness. And if someone is richer than, uh, you know, uh, then... They are is because he was lucky. So, so they all started giving it to students. So, in fact, I played that game a little bit, and, and I have to confess. After we completed our interview, Nassim wanted to add a, uh, a few footnotes, and so we're going to have a, another brief conversation here. Nassim, what would you like to add? 
Well, the first thing is when you uh, think, uh, when you see someone writing a book called Skin in the Game, and uh, with Skin in the Game vaguely as a topic, you would assume that the book would go chapter after chapter um, uh, about the theme and, exp and explain the idea of Skin in the Game. That's not what I do. So what do you think I do? You know, I'm not sure. What yeah. you do is you open up your brain and some stuff falls out and you write it down. I, it's related <laughs> no, no. to skin in the game. But go ahead. So, so here, so here I'm, I'm really looking. So I think I'm going to give it for subtitle something like the underlying matrix of daily life. Because I think, so you go dig in the foundation of daily life to see traces of skin in the game or asymmetries in relations and how you can think of complex systems in these terms. So in fact, it's not so much about skin in the game, per se. The first 40 pages explain skin in the game. It's largely about things that are very counterintuitive and very unexpected that stem from it. Just like uh, in, in religious matters, why is it that we have sacrifice in religion? Why is it that um, the, you have the minority rule? Why is it that, uh, for instance, uh, uh, we have more uh, slaves than we did in the past. Why all these topics, about 17 or 18 of them, come from it? Come from that the fact that you cannot have have a, um, a well-functioning social life without a regulation, uh, some kind of organic regulation of these asymmetries. So you're arguing that various social norms and behaviors, religious institutions, etc., emerge as a way to cope with the asymmetries and risk profile that is going to otherwise exist. Exactly. And also we have, because of the asymmetries can be very vicious sometimes because uh, we have like the, the uh, establishment of norms that come from a very small, the preferences of a very small number of people. So there are a lot of things that come. So it's mostly a book on asymmetries, about asymmetries in society and what outcome you get from these asymmetries. So do you want to expound on that minority rule a little bit more? Uh, well, the minority rule is, is quite central because sort of it explains why. Um, uh, well, well, I mean, uh, things get established. I mean, you argue that I have, I have something to, 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 to answer now uh, about uh, whether, you know, why, a, a, uh, why do we have handicapped bathrooms and stuff like that. And, and, and these are very costly. <laughs> but it's because we are driven... It's not, I mean, when, when you do economics and, and think in terms of aggregates, you have a feeling that aggregates are determined by an arithmetic average. It's not. It's some kind of nonlinear function. So if you do your calculus that way, you no longer see anything non-economical about minority rules. Yeah, I just don't know how common they are. I mean, I think, I think the point you made earlier when we talked about it uh, before is that, you know, if the costs are low enough – Obviously, you want to make more people happier than fewer people. And so if, you know, your example you give in your essay, if uh, it's really inexpensive to make orange juice kosher and you get the tiny proportion of people who, who drink orange juice, who care about kosher, will then buy it. You don't need to have two separate kinds. And that's because there's nothing about kosher orange juice that's going to deter the non-kosher keeping consumer. I just don't know how widespread those kind of phenomena are. I, I, I think there are they some. Are, I mean, once you look at, I mean, the, the, if, you, if you read the, the, the books in details, you see things that, that, that uh, I myself didn't think about what, except the last minute while writing it. Um, from uh, the way... Uh, we consume uh, 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 stuff on planes, and so, some things are quite costly. 
just, I mean, building a bathroom, a handicapped bathroom, and making something handicapped compatible is very costly. And it's quite worldwide, whether you have a large government or, as in Switzerland, very small communes. But the standard argument there is is different, I think, than the one that you are invoking in your uh, manuscript, which is the standard argument for the for the political power of minorities is that even in so-called uh, democracies that have where majority will play some role, they're not majority rule systems. Literally, almost no democracy in modern no democracy in modern times is. So there's a set of institutions that that lead to political outcomes. And given those institutions, uh, minorities with intense preferences will often get their way in a way that uh, might be surprising, even though they were only a small minority. And that argument, I, th- I think, is different than your argument. That argument is, I think it really, I think it's associated with Mansur Olson. That argument is, is that the the majority, the ninety nine percent of the people who don't. Uh, grow sugarcane or sugar beets. They don't care. Uh, they do care about the fact that that uh, anything with sugar is more expensive because we restrict sugar quotas. But it's a small effect. And given the transaction costs of politics, they just sort of suck it up and take it. But if you grow sugar beets or sugarcane, the impact on you is enormous. So you have a big incentive to be vocal. That's the standard argument for why minorities are politically powerful. If you're, you know, if you're. A- if you're right, it's exactly the same. Yeah, it's the exact same mechanism. Why? Be, because, be, it's the same. When, when, when you map it mathematically, you notice that it's the same nonlinear uh, function, where where uh, and and the cost matters very little in, in in almost all these situations. It's just simply that you you, you tend to think that uh, that when you aggregate stuff, uh, you're 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 using a linear. Uh, Averaging, or in fact, it's uh, nonlinear, and nonlinearity produces the same effect. Now, now, the details, of course, vary. Here, you're telling me that, of course, some special interest group care a lot more about uh, their their profits uh, than you you do about your small little uh, pennies, uh, and 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 they're much better organized. Uh, of course, you, you, we can put details on that, but the function is, is pretty much. In, I mean, the, the the concept is invariant. Whenever in the presence of some nonlinear payoff. Uh, things are very different, and and I applied it to markets by by showing how markets are determined by minorities, not by the, motiv- the most motivated uh, minorities, not by the aggregate. So let's think and about these that. minorities can be very small, very yeah. very small. But let's think about that for a minute. If, there's a whole range of um, family types in America right now, right? There there are people who live on their own, there are people with lots of children, there are people with a few children. There are old people who live by themselves. There's young people who are just starting off in their careers. And so if you're one of those people and you want to buy a car, there's a huge range of choice for you, right? Because – and that's not driven by, uh, I don't think, these phenomena that you're talking it about. Is, it is largely driven – everything in micro driven by minority. The, uh, for, for the reason we don't drive sticks or shifts is because of a minority rule. An automatic shift is vastly more expensive – or used to be vastly more expensive. Now, of course, it did uh, – the cost came down. So uh, even at the micro level uh, of the product, you're driven by minority rule. Because the other, the majority, is silent. So the preferences either don't matter, they don't aggregate, or they don't count. Because they're b- below a threshold. So you have to exceed the threshold for, for your preferences to count. Yeah, it used to be that you could get – you had a choice between automatic or stick shift. Now it's basically you get automatic. 
Uh, I you get automatic, and and the I'm norm, not, and, and also and the new generation doesn't know how to drive six shifts. Correct. Yeah, my children don't so, know. So how. yeah, so so for yeah, so so these things get established. Uh, they're initially triggered by some minority rule, <laughs> and things continue. Okay. But there's there's there is another thing I want I want to discuss that's quite sure. potent, and particularly that I actually learned about it on your program, and it's uh, and it actually contradicts <laughs> some things. I mean, not something it doesn't contradict you. It sort of answers um, uh, uh, some of your uh, criticisms of my idea uh, of uh, anti globalization, and it is the Ostrom uh, fisheries argument. Okay. Is that effectively we have the illusion that the world is some universal place that that a country is a large village and and and, and of course the world is like a large country and that's not how it works and the best metaphor is the one that my collaborator in complex systems the physicist Yanir Baryam um, brought is is is, is, is uh, in a paper called. Uh, good fences make good neighbors. <laughs> and in fact, you notice that roommates have different uh, relationships, okay? They're, they're going to fight a lot more than neighbors because you'd rather uh, than, say, uh, uh, floor mates. You have your own uh, door, uh, uh, room and uh, someone else has his own room. So so the, the if we look at how things uh, work, effectively, you have ethics, ethical sort of... Uh, 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 rules that that are never quite universal. They're they're, they're vaguely universal, but there's what what uh, Jewish ethics calls uh, thin blood and thick blood. And and in, in the book, I I, I described um, I described it as a uh, uh, the, the problem of the Swiss. So for example, when 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 we were traders, when I was a trader, I had a you, there's very very very. Uh, <laughs> complicated and, and very stiff ethical rules. You, you can never rip off, or rip off in the sense of trader sense, you can never overcharge another trader. You had to be transparent, you had to be upfront, you had to disclose your inventory. You cannot hurt another dealer in that community if you want to continue, because that's how the game worked. But you could conceal your inventory from what we call the Swiss at the time. And the Swiss were those foreigners, you see, Clients of Swiss banks, of course, that's how the, the, the term, uh, where the term originated from. And, and with these guys, you could have different rules of ethics. <laughs> and effectively, if you look at ethical systems, you always have a boundary. Now, of course, we should not have these boundaries. But it tells you that things work a lot better if you uh, build units. And then you have a fractal relationship between units, so, so, so things are organized fractally, of course, and then they have like a fractal relationship. So I have a relationship with uh, uh, my cousin, and, 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 and my cousin and I, as a unit, say a family, will have a relationship with other families. And, and then, of course, the, 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 the group as a whole will have a relationship with another uh, structure and, and so forth. And, and, and Ostrom picked it up. By noticing that the tragedy of the commons disappears effectively with uh, you know with scale, I mean it disappears if you if the reduce the scale. Yeah, yeah, with a reduced scale. Small enough so, group can have a set of norms that restrain uh, the problems of free riding on a commons. Exactly, and 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 I looked at it uh, in anti-fragile actually um, uh, initially. With the notion of nonlinearities, uh, like like uh, the the sum of uh, some convex function have has a different uh, uh, 
structure. And, and of course, um, this is what's behind my ideas on not restricting, but sort of like organizing things along a local level and restricting globalization. So I disagree you with so, you. Let me, let, me, let me lay out what I, why I think that's not applicable. Uh, and I'm going to first tell a story I've told before, I'm pretty sure, which is when my children were collecting baseball cards when they were younger, my oldest son would propose some trade that would exploit his younger brothers. And they had to go to the commissioner, that was me, to get that trade approved because I did not want my son to do what you might call sharp dealing, trying to get the best possible price from his brothers who were less informed than he was. So as a, as a parent in a family, uh, I have, I'm, a, I'm a, a strong egalitarian. I'm a bit of a socialist. I'm a paternalist. Uh, I certainly don't want those rules extended beyond the family. And that, so in that sense, I agree with you that there are norms and rules that are much more local rather than global. I don't think that has anything to do with globalization as an economic phenomenon, at least the way I understand it. It could be, have something okay. to do with, with the way other people understand it. And maybe, the reason maybe is – Maybe because yeah, – let, let me make parenthesis here is that usually people who discuss globalization bundle it with other notions such as universalism. See, yeah, that's it true. Comes from, Just a little bit from of that. the application of that sort of continental French, uh, post-French, uh, French-style Enlightenment idea of universal rules. Okay, so so the re- universal, in my opinion, kills a particular. That's I'm closing parentheses. So I'll let you continue. So here, here's the way I think about it, and it's this is very Hayekian. Uh, I and it's Smithian in the following sense. If I only trade with the people I know, trust, and love, I'm going to be very poor because I'm going to have – I'll be unable to exploit economies of scale. And so if I'm a localist, a true localist, meaning only trade with either nice people or people I can – that I have ethnic or religious similarities to, I'm going to be poor. The secret of modern civilization, I would argue, is the opportunity to trade with people who are not like me, who I trust using other mechanisms than my familiarity with them. So when I buy an apple that comes from New Zealand or I buy um, something that comes from, from – uh, doesn't have to come from New Zealand. It could come from Illinois. I have no idea who those people are who made the product. I rely on markets to verify the quality and that the price is, is a decent price, and that's a really great thing. And once I'm outside the people I don't deal with face-to-face, <clears throat> I think that's the way – in other okay. words, here's the way I would say it. Uh, I don't put any – uh, emphasis on national borders. So trading with a stranger, whether that stranger is in Illinois or New Zealand, to me is the same thing. And I think that's the way it should be. And and the market, that is the emergent mechanisms of trust, will determine whether I should use that product from New Zealand or not, rather than some arbitrary, oh, the New Zealanders don't trade fairly or whatever it is. And the opportunity anti-globalization, the problem with that is is that it allows it, the politicization of those decisions rather than using the emergent mechanisms of markets to decide whether I should trade with them or not, and that's going to make me very poor. Okay, so, so yeah, so I, I, I agree with you. I'm, I, we have the same uh, uh, views on uh, trade in general, okay, with one or two caveats that I don't think that it should be um, universal, so universal should be should not be completely unfettered because you may have um, overseas uh, very powerful corporations who, for some reason, got to be very strong, and very rich, and have huge reach, 
uh, affect you in Illinois or affect you wherever you're based. Um, and and they can reach, right they, to, they can to, reach into to my pocket. Protect, yeah. They can reach into my pocket using the power of the government to subsidize their loan to buy airplanes yeah, and sell uh, them somewhere. That's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, there are a lot of things we agree on. My, my point is not. Uh, I, I'm, I'm of course pro trade. My point is that if they, you're going to put some kind of um, uh, sort of uh, uh, boundaries or some limited. Uh, control of things. You, you need to understand that that it's not completely against the rules because you can you can say okay well, everybody's free within this limit, but to trade between these two borders, you need a little bit of uh, I won't say regulation, but sort of like uh, we need we need to agree. I mean the population uh, inside a certain unit needs to agree on whether they want uh, that corporation to sell goods here or not. You see. So it's not against democracy. It's exactly the way the Swiss do it, where they go to the local population and ask them, "Hey, what do you guys want?" Yeah, but then I'm do worried want, about do that. Do you want Polish? Do you want a Polish? Uh, uh, do you want a Polish um, uh, plumber uh, and reduce your plumbing bills by uh, by seventy five percent? Yes or no? And and if the local population says no, they're not going to allow foreign plumbers. From Poland or elsewhere, who are considerably um, maybe more uh, cosmetically more efficient to come operate, so they're gonna do their own plumbing. So, so the Swiss are very good at having uh, uh, marrying sort of like uh, the idea of, uh, of free trade with some kind of patches, and that's what I'm discussing. Yeah, those patches, though, of course, are going to come up against the point you made a minute ago about the minority. The minority, because the the Swedish plumbers are all going to be against it. They're not very many of them. Are they going to get the minority rule to impose their will on me who wants to use the Polish plumber? No, but they they have a good mechanism to prevent. So what what happens in in countries like Switzerland, countries that have very good governance, and, and, and I'm saying governance, not just democracy, is that effectively... The someone voting for or against a worker will know his own inter- his or her own interest. You see, as opposed to the the interest of Larsic. What happened in the United States is that the reason we have very powerful lobbies in the United States is pretty much because of scaling, because the size of the country is large enough to allow people to lobby and spend the money, because the payoff is is is, is monstrous. But if you had, uh, uh, I don't know how many cantons in the United States, then then Monsanto would need to have uh, seven or eight thousand uh, lobbyists to do the same job. Yeah, that's so true. You see the I difference. agree with that. At that yeah, point, you see, this is this is where. <laughs> so 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 the organization of. So I'm not arguing in favor of a top-down control. I'm arguing in favor of a bottom-up control. See, of a bottom bottom-up restriction or freedom, just bottom-up thing. Like for example, for a long time, the Swiss did not allow foreigners to come by. Uh, houses, okay? Now, you may think it's, uh, it's very offensive to someone who believes in free trade, but they thought that given that they have great weather and a great political system, and hence a lot of stability, it, it does attract a lot of rich people who are going to come in and distort prices. So, they, some cantons allowed, okay, this, the, the foreigners. Some places like Zug love, uh, Zug love uh, foreigners. Some places like Gstad, um, uh, I think, uh, they like foreigners, but other places don't like foreigners. You see, they don't want not because they don't like foreigners, but because they feel that people coming in from Saudi Arabia or Russia or 
you know, some billionaires going to come in and mess up the social structure, you see? Now, now, do you, are you for, for or against such a thing? It's a club. So the whole thing is, when I read Ostrom, prompted by your discussion with Peter Betke, I went and saw the word club. And effectively, my behavior inside of Club Lounge at JFK is different from the one I have outside of Club Lounge. Automatically, I know it in a club, for example, inside when I, when, when, when I, if I'm not in a public area, okay, I'm in a club. It's neither public nor private, okay? I leave my stuff. I leave my, my, I leave my computer on the table uh, and, and go get uh, my uh, pastis, okay, and, and come back with my pastis. So I, I, don't, I, I, I trust the other people in the club uh, in a limited way, of course, but there's something I will never get in an open space um, with other people. So, so it's just these small little things that turning something into a club, and a club has its rules, letting goods in, letting people in, and usually there is a very good governance at that level. And this is what you and I will agree on, that there is governance. If people, ha people have the right to decide that all houses need to be painted red in their neighborhood, if that's what they want, you see? Yes. And? Um, so, no, so that's, that's my, my limitation on, uh, on globalization. I don't understand that if you're saying that people should be able to choose to insulate themselves from the negative and positive effects of globalization, at, and that should be done at a localish level. That's an interesting exactly. idea. That's an interesting so, idea. It's very expensive, um, and, and you could argue that that's the freedom of those people to choose whatever they want. If they want to live in a, you know, if they want to say have no economic change. If you want to live in a place where land use is highly restricted so that there's not a lot of dynamism in how land is reallocated for different purposes, once a building is historic, it should be left alone. It's an interesting question. It, it, the problem with it, of course, is that you need a way to decide. And you and I might want to be in a club for some of these decisions. But we'd also care deeply about how the club is allowed to decide. Is it majority rule? Is it some other complicated system of representation where they make the, the decisions for us? Um, yeah, but at the local, you see, at the level of a club, when you organize things in different clubs, then you have the, 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 the minority rule is less vicious. Why? Because let's think about it. Let's say that um, the, 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 the cut point is uh, 3%, but it's stochastic. Say you have 3% of the people want everybody to dress in red, but it's stochastic, Okay. Some, some, some neighborhoods will have 1%, some neighborhoods will have 10% of those who want us to uh, wear red, okay? And the cut point is 3%. So you'll have a lot of communities who will not have that rule. And you'll have a lot of communities who will have that rule. If you get, aggregate everything in one pot, everyone will have the same rule. So you, you create more diversity by having these, um, these uh, insulation. You see, like what, what, I would, what I call circuit breakers. Well, that's interesting. I think, yeah, I think there's, a, there's some truth to the idea that nations are too big. Uh, nations are way too big. This is why, I mean, we, 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 in the United States, we live, we still live, in spite of Obama, in a, a federation. It's not a republic. But we are quickly, or we were on a way of losing that <laughs> attribute. Yeah, well, I've been worried about it for a long time. And then the other thing that we have here is that we allow... Uh, we have a freedom of uh, of uh, of uh, you know uh, 
uh, leave, you have the right to leave, you see. And, and contrary to what political scientists say, effectively people do exercise the right to leave. Oh, for sure. That's a huge, yeah. huge factor. Yeah, it, it is. So, so you move, you, if taxes, I remember when, when I moved to Connecticut, I moved my office to Connecticut for tax reasons because New York was messing with us, you see. So you have the right. And, and of course, uh, there's a free market to operate because people start competing. Yep, if the minority rule becomes the, too onerous in one place, other some people will go to a different yeah, place. That's the good part. Exercise. Yeah, so, so there'll be some competition there. My guest today has been Nassim Nicholas Talib. Nassim, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much. Thanks. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.